We have lost the understanding that if a person does not embrace and accept Christ as their Savior, they will spend a Christless eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says, not me. That's what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 22 says, or 21 says, all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That's eternity without Christ. Amen? And it's really critically important to make sure that we always pray and we always ask the Lord to give us a sense of lostness for mankind. That if our neighbors don't know the Lord, they're going to spend eternity without Christ and they're going to spend eternity without God. And we've got to recognize that as we pray, God will give us a burden and give us a renewed burden for the lostness of mankind. Now, this morning I've asked two people to help me with the sermon today. And uh, they are theologians and scholars. And one of them is, is coming to a place we pre keep praying and praying for him that somehow he'll see the light and he'll shed the, 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 the Patriots uh, team and, and, and get away from that team. Uh, but, but, but I, I want to ask uh, Pastor Jared and Vinny to come, and they're going to help us to understand, one, the lostness of man and the solution that we find in Christ. So I want them to come. Give them a big hand as they come and help us to understand a little bit more about it. And let's just, let's just extend our hand towards Pastor Jared right now, and let's pray for him. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray you would come to his senses, Lord God, and repent of his sins, Lord God. No, I'm just kidding. Praise God. He's the smartest man in the room because there ain't no, no team like the Patriots. Man, thank you, Pastor Steve. Uh, for a moment, can we just, uh, I just want to honor him. I think that's something that's lost in our culture. and So thankful for his leadership in our church and the opportunity to, to speak with you and uh, his love for you guys and for our young people. Um, so we, we honor you, Pastor Steve. Thank you. Before we get started, let me just take my jacket off. Just, just, Tony, thank you so much. I just, I just want to. It's the only day I can get away with this. Man, I, I'm excited for tonight. Some of you may know it's a Super Bowl tonight. And uh, you may not know this, but the Patriots are in it again. Uh, and I'm excited. I mean, this brings back some memories for me. Because I've lived in New York now um, almost 10 years. And, uh, and, and I've, I've suffered some lostness to New York. In fact... The two times that we lost, I'm not saying I'm cursed tonight, but the two times that we lost to the New York Giants, and do not applause for that, okay? No, 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 no. The two times, yeah. The two times that we lost, I was on stage speaking that Sunday morning, talking trash about the Patriots. And so when Pastor Steve asked me to speak this morning, I said, Lord, no. I almost had to call in sick just to preserve, you know, I didn't want to have the curse of, of us losing. And so I don't know if it's God trying to humble me because we should be 6-0. and oh, But thankfully to David Tyree and a demonic possession coming over him, doing something he's never done his whole career, which is catch a ball, we, we lost that Super Bowl. And, uh, and so, man, I'm reminded today of lostness. I'm reminded today of lostness, and I'm hoping tonight that that doesn't happen. So um, if you would join me in prayer for the one and only, one and only team, the New England Patriots. We're going we're gonna to continue the series this morning, uh, the Lost series. And, uh, and we're going to talk about what does it mean to be lost. And so I want to read to you guys a, a, a scripture in the Bible. If you turn to John chapter, uh, John chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 7, and it's a story of lostness. What does it mean to be lost? And then Vinny's going to come and talk about how do we treat that lost, lost people? What is our mission flowing out of the realization that the world is lost? And so this morning, as we dive into Scripture, I hope that our hearts are changed. I hope that we're moved to understand the truth about the world that we live in, the truth about our own hearts, and that we're moved to have a, a, a desperate desire and a passion to have a mission. So would you join me? I'm going to read this, then I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive in. If you're with me, let me hear you say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Boom. All right. 
John chapter 4, verse 7, it says, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is when it gets spicy. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem it is a place... Uh, is a place that people ought to worship. And Jesus said this to her, Woman, believe in me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for your goodness. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that we can be in this place, God. We thank you that those, there are those here who may not be believers in Jesus, and, and you've brought them here. They're here, and, and we're, we're so thankful for that. There may be those who here who have been in church their entire lives, God, and we pray no matter where that this audience is, those who are listening are on the faith spectrum, that today, Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to be moved by you, to be transformed by you, that we would see truth in the scripture that we've never seen before that would move us to a deeper place in trusting and loving Jesus. And we thank you for the opportunity not only to know who you are, but to be moved to have a mission that is given by you to reach a world who is lost. We thank you, Jesus, and bless the patriots. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about lostness. What does it mean to be lost? And, and here's what I, I, I grew up always thinking this. If you're in church, you grew up thinking this. Those who, do not, those who are lost, and, and by the way, if you're not a Christian here, that's just a way of saying um, those who have not put faith in Jesus. And the, what we always think is that's people who don't worship, right? Christians, the religious ones are the ones who worship, and the non-religious, they don't worship at all. But as we actually start to dive into this story in the Bible, we actually see something very, very different. Jesus is showing us something about being lost. And the truth that he's showing us is this. We all worship. See, the world is lost not because it doesn't worship. The world is lost because it worships the wrong things. And Jesus comes in and he confronts this Samaritan woman. And what we're going to see, what he does, is he doesn't try to create in her worship. He tries to confront her worship. And so he comes along and he's traveling with his disciples. He sends his disciples into the village and he comes to the well, which would have been a common place in that culture. And uh, it's in the heat of the day and there's a woman there. And this was pretty rare because women did not go to get water. And that was their job in the heat of the day. They were generally tend to be a little bit smarter than us dudes. So we show up in the hot weather. They don't. Uh, and so, but she's there nevertheless. And, and, she's, and we'll find out why she's there. And Jesus comes and he starts to talk to her, right? And his very words to her are pretty profound because he's breaking down all kinds of barriers. He's breaking down the religious barrier that Jews didn't talk to Samaritans. He's breaking down this gender barrier. Men didn't talk to women. He's breaking down this social and cultural barrier. She was an outcast. That's why she was there. Right? And Jesus confronts, he's breaking down a racial barrier. 
They didn't mix. They didn't, they didn't talk. They were of different breeds, of different races. And Jesus, in one moment, breaks all of that down. It's the uniqueness of Christianity. And he begins to speak to this woman. And, and he begins to talk to her. And in verse 13, we see something very, very profound. It says, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. See, Jesus starts off, and, and, and he's talking spiritually, right? But this woman and most of the people that were listening to Jesus at first didn't get it. Maybe she hadn't had her coffee yet or, or whatever. She didn't understand. But he's talking to her, and he's using a physical thing that's happening to make a spiritual point. And he goes, listen, those who come to this well, those who, those who come here are continually thirsty, and he's making the analogy that every day you come to this well, sometimes twice a day, and it never satisfies, right? You come, you get a drink, you're thirsty for a while, but guess what? You're always thirsty again. You always got to come back. Your, your livestock, your animals, they're always thirsty again. It never satisfies. You never come to a point when you get a drink, you're like, oh, I'm good. Like, wow, that, that'll hold me over till the end of my life. No, every day, right? It's, it's all the time. And Jesus goes, do you realize that you are always coming back here? That you are a slave to this well? You're a slave to it. And again, remember, he's talking spiritually. And she's like, well, give me this, give me this Gatorade. Like, what is this super, super duper juice that will make me no longer thirst? And he goes now and moves from, from a, a general spiritual point, which is you're a slave to this thing. And he moves and, and he touches her heart. He begins to show her why she is a slave to her worship. And he goes, I'll tell you what, go get your husband. Right? Go get your husband. She's like, ah, the reality of why she's there at the heat of the day becomes evident. See, this woman had been married five times. And living with a man who was not her husband, that culture, that was a complete no-no. She was a social and a cultural outcast to the point where she couldn't even mix with other women. That's why she was there when no one else was. She had traded in everything that in that culture they valued to have men, and it was never enough, right? That's why she had five of them and now a six. Jesus is showing the very heart of her worship. He's going, do you see this? Remember the well thing I was talking about? You look to men to give you worth and value. You look to men to satisfy you, and clearly it never does because you've gone through six of them. Right? He goes from the general idea to the very specific. He confronts her heart that your problem is not that you don't worship. Right? This woman's spiritual. This woman understands. She has some sort of belief in God, although she's not really religious. She doesn't really practice it. But what he's saying is you don't need, I don't need to create a worshiper in you. I'm going to confront what you worship. Anybody a UFC fan in here? Wow. Okay. That was a bomb. There's one person. If you don't know what UFC is, that's Ultimate Fighting Championship, okay? It's a great athletic event. <laughs> yes. Well, in the Ultimate Fighting Championship, there was, this, there was this very famous fighter. Her name was Ronda Rousey. She was a female fighter. She was the champion, never been beaten. I mean, she was the type, like, she would walk in the ring and just look at the opponent, and they would just fall over. Like, that, that's the type of fighter that she was, unbeaten. And, uh, and, and a while back, she had a fight. Everybody thought she was going to win. Everybody thought she was going to win. And she comes in and she loses. Now, if you're sitting here, right, and you're reading this story and you go, that's good for the Samaritan woman. Obviously, she's maybe spiritual. She worships. But that's not me. I don't worship. I want to show you how all of us worship. The whole world worships. To be lost is to worship. Here's what Ronda Rousey says. A couple months after her loss, she did an interview on the Ellen DeGeneres show. And here's what she said. And listen to these words. She said, honestly... My thought, I was like in the medical room, and I was down in the corner, and I was sitting in the corner thinking, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And that exact second, I'm thinking, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one gives a blank about me anymore without this. She's sitting in, in, in her dressing room after losing the title, and she's contemplating suicide. Why? Because everything she worshipped all of a sudden was gone. The thing that gave her her identity, right, her worth and her value, the thing that gave her worth to have breath in this life, the thing that gave her meaning in life was all of a sudden gone. She thought, why even live anymore? The thing she worshipped was taken from her, and it robbed her of everything. 
She worshipped approval from people. She wanted to be great. She wanted to have worth and value, right? And so she says that, and then she goes on and says this. She goes, uh, what do I do anymore? No one gives a bleep. To be honest, here's what she says. I looked up, and I saw my man. He was standing up there, and I looked up at him, and I was like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive, she said. I don't know if I'd made it without him. And everybody on the show claps, and they're all, wow, that's great. You, do you see what happened? She, she shifted her worship from one thing to another. The first thing was approval from everybody else, approval from the world. And when she lost that, at first, maybe I'll kill myself. And all of a sudden, instead of killing herself, she simply shifted her worth and value, her identity over to a man. And said, okay, well, if I can't be this, then I'll be this. She's a slave to it, right? Spent her whole life pursuing it, being the champion. And the moment she lost it, like if that was me, I'd be like, well, that was a good run. Like, wow, I was undefeated, made a lot of money, like a pretty good fighter. No, no, the moment she lost it, her life was over. Guys, you realize that you and I are the exact same way? You and I, we all worship in this world. Everybody does. We have certain things that we look to to give us identity, worth and value. And we think, man, if I could just have this, right? If I could just have more money, then I would be worth something. If I could just have more people like me, then I would be worth something. If I could just have more power or prestige, if I could just uh, be a better Christian, have a better husband or wife, right? We look at other couples on Facebook and Instagram. Everybody knows that's an accurate depiction of relationships. <laughs> Every picture is like, hey. What you don't see is at home, it's like, I hate you. <laughs> We're like, man, I wish that guy was my husband. I wish that girl was my wife, right? Like, right? We, we think, man, if I just had that, if my kids just didn't break each other's legs, true story in my house. Right? If I just had this, then I would have worth and value. And we can spend our entire lives chasing it, never to get it. Or when we get it, we're desperately afraid of losing it. And when we do, we'll even consider taking our own life. Because what is life worth living if I don't have identity? We all worship something. We are a world of worshipers. To be lost is not to not worship. It's to worship the wrong things. You and I are exactly in the same place. We can worship our ethnicity. We can worship our political views. We can worship being really handsome, right? Being really smart, being really athletic, having the most money, being the most religious. We can worship being the best behaved. We can worship all those things. And Jesus is saying, do you see how that's like a trip to the well? Every single day you're a slave to it. And it never satisfies. It never does. I remember when I was, um, I remember when I was uh, uh, eighth grade, or no, sixth grade, I moved to a new school. And everyone in the school knew each other really well, and I was the new guy there. And from sixth grade to eighth grade, I got bullied like crazy. I was always a bigger guy, bigger guy than the rest of the kids, and, um, and so they would call me fat and stupid, and it was just a, r a tough three years. And I remember uh, when I went to ninth grade, we went to a high school, and it was a combination of multiple schools, right? So it was kind of a new start. And I remember thinking to myself the summer before my freshman year, I was like, my only goal in high school is to be liked. That's my only goal. Now, now kids won't admit that, right? Teenagers won't admit that because they're too school, but that was my only, I, was, I just want to have friends. I just want to be liked. And I remember going in, and I became a chameleon. I became one, whatever group I was around, that's who I became. When I was at church, I was the greatest youth group kid. When I was with the druggies, I was the biggest druggie. When I was with the jocks, I was athletic. Right? Whatever, whatever I thought they wanted me to be in order to get their approval, I became that. And I remember laying in my bed at home when no one else was around and thinking to myself, I don't know who I am. The realization, I am a slave to this thing. I'm desperate for it. But you know what the irony is? Now, later on in my life, after I know Jesus, do you know my heart still worships that? My heart still worships approval. I'm still desperate for people to like me, people to think I'm awesome, people to think I'm great. I, I constantly, every day, find my heart wandering to worship the idolatry of approval. Always. That's my heart. Do you realize, church, that's our, that's our heart? Do you realize in this world, the lostness of this world is not that they don't worship. It's that they worship stuff that never satisfies. There's a, there's a, a man named David Foster Wallace, and he is not a Christian. But he's a, a very well-known author. And he gave a talk a few years back at, uh, at Canyon College at the commencement address. And I want you to hear some of the insight that he gives, even though he's not even, he's not even a Christian. Here's what he says. 
He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of good, some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or a wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never, you will always need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship It's not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. You know, a couple years after this address, David Foster Wallace committed suicide. A man who understood the nature of his own heart, but at one point was overwhelmed by the reality of it. It made him a slave. Every day going to the well and never being satisfied. Man, do you realize today, church, that we are all worshipers, that the world is lost and is filled with worshipers. And our solution is not to get people to behave right, to look like worshipers. Our solution is to point them to the only one worthy of worship. See, when we look to the cross, right, when we look to the, the cross of Jesus, here's what we see. Everything else you can worship in this life will ask you to give everything for it. You want money, you'll never have enough. You'll give your whole life for it. You'll sacrifice your family to get it. You'll sacrifice your health to get it, right? You want beauty, you'll you'll do anything to get it. Everything that you could worship and chase in this life will ask everything of you, and it will never be enough. Jesus is the only one who gave up everything for you, right? He doesn't ask you to give your life for him. He gave his life for you, and so as we worship him, it's the only thing that we worship that gave everything up for us. It's the only thing that we worship that instead of imprisoning us into this lifelong uh, desire to always accomplish, he actually sets us free and we can rest for the first time in our life. That Knowing my identity, my worth and value, if you're here today, is not based on my pursuit of this, that, or another thing. It's based on the work of Jesus, which is done. It's accomplished. It's eternal. It's never ending. It's never fading. Right? That's, that is our hope. So we can wake up every day going, I don't have to worship this. I can worship him. He is the one worthy of my worship. Man, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, do you see how beautiful he is? Do you see he's the only thing that gave up everything for you? He's worthy of your worship. Vinny's going to come and he's going to talk about how when our identity is transformed, how that connects with our mission. So would you give it up for my man, Vinny? Wow, what a conversation we just read about. And what a call from Jesus, calling a woman, talking about water, about a conversation that really had nothing to do with water. Did you know that this conversation is the longest recorded conversation we have written in the Gospels between Jesus and one other person? This is what Jesus says when when he's one-on-one with somebody. It's a call out of the lifestyle that she was living in into a new lifestyle. And what we see next here is actually really interesting to me. And I think that um, when we read scripture, a lot of times we just breeze over things and don't realize that things are in scripture on purpose and not by accident. And we need to focus on the small details in order to really understand what a text is saying. So the next thing that we see um, is really the most interesting part to me because we know the call of Jesus. And uh, what I think here is what we are about to see is the response of the average everyday Christian or the new believer, the person going from unbelief to belief, the person going from worship of created things to worship of the creator, as Romans says. So if we read, uh, we're going to be in John again, chapter 4, 28 to 30. And this is the woman's response to Jesus' call. It says this, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, 
See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. So let's stop for a second and uh, let's focus on what this woman was coming to this appointment with, right? She came to get water. She came to this well with a few things. First thing was a need for water. She showed up there for a reason. It was a need for water. The second thing that she came with was her shame. And you heard Jared talk a little bit about it, but she was there at a weird time for her to be there. She was there at midday. Nobody goes to the well at midday. It doesn't make sense. But she was avoiding people because she was ashamed of the life she was living. She was ashamed of the sin that she was committing and everybody knew about. And the third thing she came with was an identity that was rooted in sin and it was rooted in idolatry and it was rooted in the worship of the things that were created. And then you see this call. She, she comes and she encounters Jesus and she leaves with the exact opposite of what she came with. The first thing she left with, with actually isn't the exact opposite, but she came with a need for water and she left without water. If you look at the scripture, when you read it, why does it talk about the fact that she left a water jar there? That doesn't really seem to matter in the long run, but she came for a purpose, encountered Jesus and the things that once mattered to her left behind. She didn't care anymore. The second thing that um, she left with is boldness. See, this was a woman, again, that was avoiding people because of the reputation she had. She was a woman who shows up to a well in midday when no one shows up because she was ashamed of herself. And when she leaves, the first thing she does, she turns around and she goes and finds people. And not just any people, but the people from the town that she came from, the exact people that she was just avoiding, she goes and she finds them and she tells them what happened to her. And the third thing that she leaves with is an identity that is rooted in Christ, right? She found herself being a worshiper of Jesus when she left the well. And that reminds us that we really need to focus on the fact that our identity, it informs our mission. So our source of identity is what gives us value. Jared spoke a lot about it. It's the thing that we desire most, the thing that we will pursue to the greatest extent in our lives. And whatever that thing is informs our mission, informs what we are trying to achieve in life. So if you just take a second and you think about sacrifice and what that really is. See, we all sacrifice every day. Sacrifice isn't giving up something we don't want for something that we do want. That's not sacrifice at all. That's just a great decision. Right? Sacrifice is giving up something we want for something that we want even more. And this woman, when she came to the well, the thing she wanted most, right? she is a Samaritan. Now, if you don't know a little bit about these people group, they have the same Pentateuch as the Jews did. They had the first five books of the Bible that the Jews did. They had the same law that the Jews did. So she knows that her behavior is sinful. It's not a question in her mind. She knows the Jewish law. She knows that what she deserves from her actions is actually death by stoning. This woman is one who sacrificed her morals and her dignity and her spirit, really, for the approval of a man that, again, just never satisfied. So when our identity is wrapped up in something other than Jesus, we pursue it and we will sacrifice the things that Jesus tells us not to sacrifice because we're looking for something that we love more than we love him. So now her identity is wrapped up in Christ and her, her mission and our mission is to pursue him. And what that means is this, it's really simple, and Jesus says it right before he leaves earth, and he says it to the disciples. He says, reach people and make disciples. So here's the good news, and this is why um, I say this is the response of the average Christian, right? She's not Paul, and uh, if you know scripture, you know who Paul is, and sometimes that could be a scary thought for us. Like, um, yeah, I was going and killing Christians, and now next thing I know, I'm a missionary. Like, that's scary. 
That is actually some high standards uh, that if we try to measure ourselves up to, uh, we have to live like Paul did. Um, yeah, we should, but that's, that's not easy. That's a scary thing to think of. And a lot of times we get stuck in this response to Christianity when we finally realize that Jesus is worth our worship. And um, we go, okay, I have two choices here. I can become a pastor or a missionary. Well, what do I do? But this is why I say that this is the beauty of this text, right? This is the, the response of the average Christian. And yes, we should do things that are great. And if we're called to missions, that's amazing. But every single one of us is called to the same thing, which is to reach people and make disciples. So this woman turns around, and what she does is she makes her everyday life her mission field. And that's what we are called to do. This is the response of the everyday Christian, to live the life we were living on a different mission than we were before. So here's, here's really the point. Uh, ministry, ministry is not a job for pastors. Ministry is not a job uh, for missionaries. Ministry is a job for the church, the whole church. And the church not being the building, but a community of believers united for love, by love for Christ. So every single one of us in this room, if we've accepted Jesus, is in ministry. Now, some people are going to have that as an occupation, and that's great, and you'll have a different responsibility at times. But all of us are called to the same thing. It's all of our jobs to reach people. This is what we call living on mission. And this is really uh, a, a term that's a little bit newer um, but it's the fact that you change your everyday life from living for the mission you were living and changing it to the mission of God, which is to reach people and make disciples. Which means every day our job is to find people and start this transformation process and introduce them to the gospel and change what they worship over time in our everyday lives, through our everyday lives, at work, at school, with friends, family, acquaintances. That is our job as Christians, is to live this life on mission. So we're going to talk practically here because um, we hit a lot of good points, but if we just have this knowledge and we leave with that, um, it, it's not going to help us in life at all. So we're going to talk a little bit on the practical side. And uh, there's this guy named Bill Hybels. He's a famous pastor and an author. And he wrote a book called Becoming a Contagious Christian. It's all about living your life this way, reaching people with your everyday life, inviting them into your home, into your life, and showing them the gospel through your life and preaching to them. So this whole book, uh, one of the main points that I, I really love, it's really based out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus calls Christians the salt of the earth. So if we think about some common uses for salt, there's a few things that come to my, th my mind. Uh, the first one is it flavors things, right? A life without salt, I don't know if it's worth living, right? Uh, you guys ever have french fries without salt? They're disgusting. Salt flavors things, and we're called to spice things up in the world that we live in. Second thing is it creates thirst. I'm going to keep sticking with junk food because it's just what I know. Uh, if you eat a bag of potato chips, right, you, you open the bag, you get a little bit disappointed because you realize half of it's air. Then you realize, oh, they're really smart for doing that or else I'd be eating a handful of breadcrumbs. Um, thank you guys for the air. And uh, then you start eating it, you get a couple handfuls in, and you are dying for thirst. Right? You, you need water. So salt creates thirst, and we're called to create thirst in the lives of those around us. What do they have that I don't have? What is that thing that's different? Why do they have it somewhat all together? Why are they not crushed by the bad things that come up in life? Third thing it does is heals. Right? If you put salt in a wound, it's going to hurt, but it's actually going to help you in the long run because it heals you. We're called to heal and restore people to the ultimate healer, whether it's healing in this life or healing in the next life. And the fourth thing that it does is it preserves. Salt was used as a preservative, 
especially back in the time when Jesus was writing, uh, it would be used to coat meat and keep it fresh and from spoiling, and we're called to preserve worship and to remain pure and unspoiled. So based on this thing, there's two things that salt needs in order to be effective. And in turn, there's two things that we need in order to be effective in living life on mission. The first thing is high potency. High potency, right? The first thing we need to do is have a high concentration of Jesus in our life. We need to understand the gospel. We need to be able to preach the gospel to ourselves in time when we need it. We need to work on our own spiritual lives. We need to engage with the spiritual disciplines. And we need to challenge our beliefs and go deeper in the word. The second thing that salt needs in order to be effective is it needs close proximity. This one can be a challenge for us at times. But we need to engage the world. We need to reach people in their environments and not wait for them to stumble into ours. We need to be intentional about spending time with people that we want to impact. But there's a warning here as well. And here's the warning. You can't have one without the other and be successful. If you have high potency without close proximity, if you have your spiritual life all together, but you're not around people who need it, you're a spiritual giant, but you scare nobody. You need to be in direct contact with the object you're trying to affect. Salt in a jar, it's powerful seasoning, but ultimately it's just sitting there doing nothing. Salt with great potency can't produce results unless it's touching something. You can't be shaken in your belief, but ultimately you fail when it comes to the Great Commission. You're not spreading the gospel. You're not making disciples. To quote Jesus, you're a lamp put under a basket. See, we can't live in a bubble, and we have that, sometimes we just have that mindset, like we need to get away from sinful things because somehow uh, they just don't mix with our lives, and um, we can't only associate with Christians. We can't disregard people because they sin, and um, a lot of times sin the same way we do, worship the same things we're tempted to worship. So in this story of the woman in the well, if that's you, uh, if you have a high potency but you're not in close proximity, the person you are in this story is the nation of Israel. So if you don't know uh, about the background of Samaritans and Jews, we're gonna, I'm just going to jump into it really quickly uh, as fast as I can. But basically back when, they, when the Jews came into the promised land, uh, eventually they got conquered and they got taken out into exile. And other people from other nations were moved into Israel to live there. And they lived in this place called Samaria. And that's what the Samaritans are from. And uh, there was a remnant of like farmers and people who were left to work the land from Israel. They intermarried with these other cultures. And basically what happened is... Um, when the Jews were moved back into Israel, they found this people group who both served the Jewish God and false gods. And so the way that they handled this, um, it, it reminds me of this story. When I was in high school, uh, one of my best friends, we used to go to lunch every day, and uh, he was in love with Sprite, the soda. He loved it. And uh, so he would get a Sprite every day, and then we would go back, and we would eat lunch. And eventually, inevitably, every day, there was this girl there that kind of liked him. And he's like, no thanks. Uh, I'm not really interested. But she was very friendly with everybody. And um, she would always ask for a sip of his Sprite. And usually that wouldn't be a big deal, especially, like, in the culture we live in today. They're sharing everything, so the little sip of my Sprite doesn't matter. Um, so he would give her the Sprite, and she would just drink it, like, really weird. Like, she would stick her tongue into the bottle as she's drinking it, and it would disgust him, and he didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, he would just throw it out. And eventually he got to the point where he knew it was coming, so he would just drink some and be like, here, the rest is yours. I don't even want it anymore. And that's what the Jews did with the Samaritans. They come back into this land, and they find this people group, and it disgusts them because they serve God, and they serve other idols as well, and they go, just take it. Like, I know it's ours, but it's yours now. I don't, I don't want it. You, 
you, you spoiled it. It's gross. I don't, I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And then we stop and we think about, uh, about what they're saying, and we realize, like, why were the Jews in captivity anyway? Wasn't it because they served God and idols at the same time? Isn't that kind of the story of Israel from out the beginning of time, that they would serve God and then start serving idols and then get punished and then serve God and serve idols and get punished and repeat? And How funny it is that we can judge people who sin the same way we do. And the other warning I have is if you have close proximity without high potency. So you're playing a dangerous game with your eternity because you're not spiritually strong, but you want to be around the things of the world. You can't preach the gospel to yourself in times of need because, honestly, you don't get it. And so you find yourself so tempted and eventually worshiping the things that are created rather than the creator once again. And ultimately, right after Jesus calls us the salt of the earth, he tells us what these people are like. Are like. He says when salt loses its saltiness, the only outcome we have is to throw it out and let people step on it. So you can't have one without the other. You can't be in close proximity to things without the spiritual strength to do it. And you can't just have spiritual strength and not be touching people who need it. You can't have one without the other. It's dangerous. It's irresponsible. And I'm going to invite Pastor Steve up to close this out today. But I'm going to leave you with this one last quote. It's from Martin Luther King in his letter from Birmingham Jail. And it's all about how the church is to affect and have a change on society. And he's just been arrested for really peaceful, just being peace and trying to work for civil rights. And uh, he didn't do anything wrong. And then he gets this letter printed up in the, in the newspaper from a bunch of clergymen who agree with him that segregation's no good, but they don't like the way he's going about it. So his response, and the quote that I'm going to leave you with is this. He says this, In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society, transformed the central convictions the society they were a part of. Pastor Steve, if you would. And so Jesus is speaking to religious people and how we get so incredibly religious and so incredibly judgmental and so incredibly trying so desperately to take the splinter out of our brother's eye when there's a log in our own eye. Last week I talked about a generation of young people who really, frankly, don't care what you think about how they look um, because they so love Jesus that they want it to be so real. But we as Christians get so incredibly isolated from the world we insulate ourselves because we believe, as, as Pastor Jared and Vinny say, that we're the good people. We're the holy people. We're the righteous people. And we're the people that need to be separated from those people over there because they're the sinners. And I love what Vinny says. He said, the Jews were the ones who went into captivity because of their own idolatry, and then they don't want to touch the Samaritans because of their idolatry. So, so where do we start? We start with the understanding that we all, we all deserve the wrath of God. We all deserve the punishment of eternal separation from God. It's not us and them. It's welcome to the human race. And we just found living water. We're just saints that used to be sinners that now found the right well to drink at. And the truth is there are people that are thirsty and starving for truth. We're just a beggar who found the place to find food. And now we have a job to do. You see, because 
when we've been talking about the lost series, we've been talking about things that have gotten lost. I think we have gotten so far away from the great commission and the great commandment. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we truly love our neighbor, then we will truly then say, it's my job to share with them what I have found. And that is a savior who can save me and a lover that can love me, not because of what I do, but because of what he did. I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish this as the worship team comes. So tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees, the religious people, who acted differently, who dressed differently, who pretended to be religious, who were whitewashed sepulchers on the inside, who were just as bad as sinners. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them a story. Listen to the story. If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them gets lost. Everybody say lost. What will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost? Everybody say lost. Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together all his friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Everybody say lost. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who aren't righteous and haven't strayed away. Now, when we first read this, we actually think about the people who are lost and that our job is to go and save those that are lost, to leave the 99. But really what Jesus is talking about, he's not really talking about evangelism here. He's talking about putting everything back into perspective. Remember, the Pharisees were saying, those people are lost. Those people are wicked. We are the righteous. And Jesus is trying to show them they were lost. They are lost. And they need Jesus. And when we recognize how lost we were, how lost we were, it gives us a desire to go and find others that are lost and tell them about Jesus. Let's pray. Maybe today you're in this room and you say, Pastor Steve, I've recognized through the sermon today that I worship other things than Christ, that I've got a whole lot of idols in my own personal life that I need to lay down. I worship religion. I worship coming to church. I, I, I worship trying to be better. And the truth is I can't be better. I can only receive forgiveness and mercy and love through the one who died on the cross for me pastor i don't know if i died today i'd go to heaven because i've never given my life to christ and today i want to give my life i want to turn it over to him i want you to raise your hand i want to pray for you right now say pastor would you pray for me yes i see that hand yes i see that hand yes i see that hand god bless you god bless you we're going to say a simple prayer and after the service We've got a couple of people that are, we call them counselors, and they've got some information for you that they want to give you so that you can find comfort and understanding and security, not in what you do, but in what he already did. And so right after the service, I'm going to be standing right here, and I want to, I want to meet you. I want to shake your hand, and, uh, and I want to give you something. So if you raised your hand, would you please just, at the end, I just want to meet you for a moment and say hi and just just maybe give you a hug and pray for you and bless and ask God to bless you today. But the rest of us in this room today, you might say, Pastor Steve, I, I've lost the sense of human lostness. 
I've become so religious. I've become so separate from people that, that really need to hear. And, and when I go about my day, I'm so consumed with my stuff that I forget that my neighbor is lost. That my coworker is lost. And I have the answer. I have the antidote. It's Jesus. And all I need to do is share that with my neighbors and let God do the work. And pastor, would you just pray that God would set my soul on fire again and my heart on fire for people who are far from Christ and that I would commit my life to live on mission, which means that wherever I go, I'm salt and I'm light. Would you raise your hand today? Say, pastor, I want to be reminded of that. I want to live on mission. Raise your hand right now with me. Say, yes, that's me. I want to live on mission. I want to live on mission. Father, we just thank you today, Lord, for those who raised their hands, Lord, for both those who want to embrace Christ and those who want to live on mission today. Lord, we pray that you would touch us today, Lord, and that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our heart, deep in our heart, that we would represent you well wherever we go. And never forget, Lord, that you've, you've left us here on earth, Lord, to be a witness, to be salt, Lord. And maybe you're here, you raised your hand today. You said, Pastor, I, wanna, I want Christ to be my Savior. Why don't we just, why don't we invite him right now to come into our lives? Why don't we invite him to wash us clean and, and give us the gift of eternal life that cannot be earned, cannot be deserved, cannot be worked for, but just simply needs to be received and so I want you to pray with me right now all over this place. If you're watching via live stream today, pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are God, the Son. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins because my sins separated me from God. And there's nothing I can do to make up for my sin. So you took my sins on the cross and paid the penalty of my sins. I ask you today, forgive me. I receive your love, your mercy, and your grace in my life. I receive the gift of eternal life. I believe in my heart that you rose from the grave. I confess with my mouth that you are my Lord. Thank you for making me a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen.